Welcome to A Certain Age, a show for women on life after 50 who are unafraid to age out loud. I'm your host, Katie Fogarty. Have you ever had a friend say, I want you to meet one of my most amazing friends. I know you'll love her. I really think you two should know each other. And you look at your bursting Rolodex, your comically crowded Google calendar, you pause, you think, you hit the Google, and fall down the rabbit hole of her life. A former lawyer turned journalist, a New York Times career columnist, author of two career books, writer of a modern love column burned into your brain, and now a senior executive at a nonprofit you admire. I could not say yes to this intro fast enough. And now I am so delighted to introduce the marvelous, multi-hyphenate Marcy Albaher to you all. Welcome, Marcy. Oh, so excited to be here, Katie. Uh, Marcy, I, I'm, I'm thrilled that our, our fellow friend Katie uh, hooked us up. Uh, in a minute, we're going to talk about the work you do at your nonprofit, Encore, which is a social impact organization working to bridge the generational divide. But first, I really want to hear more about your various career streams. You know, I love a big, bold work pivot. You've had several. Tell us how you got where we are today. Uh Happy to do that. But first, I do have to say, when you use the phrase rabbit hole, it really hit me because I spent the last few days going down the rabbit hole of you <laughs> and a certain age pod. And um, I just really love the stories you're gathering there and, and the fresh approach you're taking towards uh, women of a certain age and what we are all about. So, well, thank so you I so like much. to say I'm a, <laughs> I'm a serial career changer, although... A, a lot of the evolution I do um, is often kind of hanging out in one place and um, thinking about the pivots we can make even without going too far away. So uh, I was um, a lawyer in my first career. I was the uh, first person in my family to graduate college, and there was quite a lot of pressure on me to go out and get a profession and and as a woman to be able to take care of myself uh, financially, not rely on a man. I was raised... <laughs> Uh, by, a, I think, a fairly chauvinistic father. Um, and one of the things that came out of that was him him um, kind of having this sense that, you know, he was the financial caretaker of the family. And my mother did not find her own footing and independence till after he died, really, much later in life. And interestingly, he turned me into this kind of fiercely independent person um in quite a lot of ways so it's a lot to unpack there how old was your mother when when he died and she had to sort of step into her own you know power so my my dad was 59 when he died and my mom was 49 and uh she basically took over a series of businesses that he started that she had kind of worked in but didn't feel a real passion for and i will say in my mom's 50s, she became this like powerful entrepreneur. So cool. So uh, yeah, so that those things really did shape me quite a lot. And uh, but as a lawyer, I, I was a really bad fit. A lot of people of my generation, your generation, Katie, I think we s fell into career paths for for various reasons. Um, I feel like younger people today have so much more creativity about what you can do in the world. And I I found you know I was good with words. I um, I uh, was very uh, expressive. I had a lot of passion for justice. So law seemed like the right path. And almost from the very beginning, it was a really bad fit. I didn't really take to the, the process of the legal world. It felt really far away from 
um, making change. I, I felt very constricted by the way you had to write and communicate and the procedures you had to follow as a lawyer. Um, and after about 10 years of practicing, I also didn't find my way to any kind of work that matched my values. I became um, a corporate lawyer. I specialized in advertising. I went into the law to do work that had more of a social justice orientation, and I couldn't really find my way into that kind of work. But I was always a writer at heart. And, um, and after about 10 years, I decided to leave that behind and try to see if I could forge a career as a writer. And thankfully, I was married at the time. I had somebody else who was making an income because I really, I stopped. Um, I just quit my job, had a bit of a crisis of conscience because I was working for a company that I really didn't believe in at the time. And uh, I knew I had to be able to do something more valuable in the world. And I was really called to, to write. And I was having such a hard time breaking in. It took years of like networking and taking classes and, and I didn't want to go back to school for journalism because I knew that the salaries were so low that I couldn't see investing in a journalism degree. And I had some credibility about being a lawyer. And eventually I started pitching stories to the New York Times, mostly around um, career issues and the law, which is what I knew. And eventually I, um, I really developed a beat around the future of careers and work and how so many of us were trying to reinvent invent ourselves in a world of work that was really shifting. That's such a big leap. I mean, it's amazing that you said you had to kind of uh, pitch yourself and you started off as a writer, but you were writing for the New York Times. I mean, that's a big, big mountain to climb. I love that you said yeah, it took did, a while to I get did, there. Yeah, Tell I us. First, yeah, I did also write, I now remember, for the legal trade publications. That was another place where I got a little kind of cut, cutting my teeth. But, I, you know, I did what all the... Um, all the books and all the mentors told me to do, which is like find an idea that only you can write and start pitching those kinds of ideas. And that's how I broke in. And I had so many mentors in those days, people who really um, helped me and spent time. And it's why I, I, I'm kind of really committed to mentoring now. I really know how important it is to, to share the trade secrets. So I spent about the next decade um, building what I call a slash identity. Um, it was all around this issue of the future of work and careers um, and also around writing, which became a real passion of mine. So I was a freelance writer. I started, um, I wrote my first book in that period, which was about this concept of the slash career, the many identities we wear. And I started teaching freelance journalism and coaching aspiring writers because I was really, that was all very fresh to me. And I sometimes think when you're fresh at something you've just experienced, you're in the best place to coach and guide others, which I know you're doing around yes, this midlife work. Exactly. When you get lit up by something, I think when you, you know, um, I, I can totally relate to what you're saying because I've, you know, when I was, you know, breastfeeding uh, my daughter and it was a struggle, I created a, an instructional video on breastfeeding with a good friend who was in movies. You know, you want to be helpful to people when you're going through challenges because you want to share what you've learned and pass it on. So I love that you did that. And so was your second book while you were at the New York Times or was that once you had no. shifted into this sort of encore career space? It, it came after I joined Encore. So what happened was while I was at the New York Times and I was covering the future of work and careers, I became aware of this organization out in San Francisco, called, then called Civic Ventures, now called Encore.org. Um, 
that was doing what, what I thought was um, really trailblazing work around looking at the demographic shifts of us becoming a much more multi-generational society um, with more people older than younger and thinking about what's going to happen for this large swath of people at, at you know, at turning um, 60 at a rate of 10,000 per day. What were we going to do <laughs> about all of these people with incredible life experience and work experience um, in a society that doesn't really value um, older people that much? So I started following the work of Mark Friedman, who's the founder of Encore, and I interviewed him for a story for the New York Times. He had a book called Encore that came out in 2007. I met him through that book, and I, I became aware through Mark of all of these people who were really working on uh, on the idea of a second or third chapter really fueled by social impact and connecting with the next generation and um, ensuring that you have a legacy, but also thinking about how do we have to change society to make all that stuff really normal? Totally. I was blown away by a stat I saw on the Encore.org website that said, uh, for the first time in U.S. history, people over 60 outnumber people under 18, which is pretty astonishing. And, and you talk about living gen to gen. You know, How does Encore practice that and how do you practice that in your own life? Mm, great question. So, you know, at Ankara, we have a kind of a dual mission. We've always, we want to change the culture. And as part of that, we tend to support um, kind of people who are working on new ideas and new innovations that value a multi-generational society or bring together the generations for social change. So we've created some of our own programs. And then we also support other thought leaders and innovators who are working in this space. So one example that I think would be really relevant for, for your listeners is we started a program called Encore Fellowships about 10 years ago. And what, when, when I went through, I was, I was hitting 50, I was starting to pay more attention to what is going on with all of these older people in the workplace. One thing that became really clear is just as like I was making this shift and craving how to stay relevant, how to have an impact, how to keep on learning as you age, and in a world where the rules of work were changing and I wasn't on the cutting edge anymore. You know, I came of age and I was thinking I was so hip because I knew all about Twitter, but suddenly like Instagram's the new thing. And how do you kind of, how do you stay in the game? Uh, so we created a fellowship for a one year program for people who want to move into the social impact space later in their career. And there, there aren't pathways like that for older people who want to, kind of reskill, retool themselves, um, get comfortable working alongside sometimes for younger people and younger leaders. So uh, that program has been around for 10 years. It's If you've ever seen the movie, The Intern, it's kind of like the intern in real life. So Although cool. instead of going to work, <laughs> going to work at tech startups, our Encore fellows go to work in social impact organizations and nonprofits. And do you pull people from, you know, some, who are some of the examples of, of people who have fellowships? Where do they get placed? What does that look like? Yeah, so they, they tend to come from the private sector. So we we had a lot of people who worked in technology. Our earliest, um, some of our er earliest corporate feeders were HP and Intel, people who have, you know, deep experience, um, whether they're engineers, communications people, IT, uh, finance, um, strategy. Um, 
And then they are they apply to the fellowship and we match them with nonprofits that are needing those kinds of skills. Now, we can't get guarantee that everyone is matched. Um, we've matched 2000 people over the last 10 years. Um, and most of those people are really interested in using their skills and making a difference, but also um, learning about a new sector. So they come in with this combination of curiosity and passion and humility, even though they have decades of experience and so much to offer. So it's a really interesting um, transition process. They get paid a modest stipend. So it's a little like an internship for people who are at midlife. And uh, there weren't programs like this before we started this program. It's so fabulous. And the, the spirit of curiosity reminds me of my last guest, Gina Pell, who is the content chief of The What? And she talks about the concept of being perennial versus being a boomer or being yeah. a millennial. And the idea that you can be ever curious, ever blooming people of all ages. And it sounds like this sort of gen to gen concept really aligns with that. How do you practice living gen to gen in your own life? Oh, so many ways. And also, I love <laughs> Good, the perennial language. The other, <laughs> the other language I love a lot is the language that um, my friend and our board member, Chip Conley, created called the modern elder. Yes. Um, which is reclaiming the elder language. And elder, I really resonate with the elder concept. And, you know, both kind of humble and wise, a student and a teacher at the same time you know, n not more, more about relevance than reverence. You know, he, he has so many gorgeous ways of talking about that concept. So in, in my life, I feel like a big thing I really try to do very intentionally is connect with people both older and younger than me all the time. Well, how so old are I you, Marcy? Friends. Oh, I'm 54. 54. So I'm quite intentional about collecting. I have all these like friends and mentors in their 70s and in their 20s and 30s. And I find um, while we all, you, you're going to have friends who are the same age as you. That's just a part of how we are socialized. So we all have, by definition, a peer group. We've gone to school with them. We've hit lots of life stage milestones with them. But you have to kind of go out of your way to form relationships with people that are, you know, if you have kids and parents, the same age as your kids or parents, right? You have to make a little effort to do that. And I find that those relationships are really rich. It's where you can learn the most. When I talk to, when I joined Encore, one of the things, and I've been to, at Encore now 10 years. When I joined Encore, one of the things that um, I saw for the first time is I started working with, I was in my late 40s and I worked, started working with a bunch of people in their 60s and even early 70s. And they became so, such mentors to me. In fact, I know you're, um, the person who introduced us, Katie Goodman, is the daughter of one of my heroes and mentors, Ellen Goodman, who is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and the founder of the Conversation Project, a really cool social venture she started in her Encore years. And she was one of the older mentors I met when I came to Encore, a bunch of really powerhouse people on our board and in our network that really showed me what it's like to continue to um, stay relevant and have an impact as you age. Um, that had a huge influence on me. I love that. And when you say Ellen Goodman, she she launched a podcast recently um, around the election. So yeah. talk about continuing oh. to just try new things on. Yeah, I totally, right. I didn't even mention that. I mentioned the Conversation Project, which was her first encore, but her second is the She Votes podcast, which talked about you know the history of suffrage in the U.S. And it's amazing storytelling. And she 
launched that with another friend in, in their both in their 70s and wanted to they were you know veteran journalists who wanted to kind of embrace the newest journalism trend. I love it. And so you talked about the older mentors that you discovered at work, but I know um, that you, from from your reading and from just the, what you've already shared on this podcast, that you look to mentor younger people. For our listeners who are thinking, you know, I want some of this, like I want to figure out ways of incorporating living gen to gen in my own life, what would you recommend to our listeners to put this into practice? Yeah, two things. One is I would stay close to your interests. So and I would, I would, so for me, you know, I think I've mentioned writing is a huge passion of mine. So um, in the last, uh, I don't know, seven to 10 years, I got really involved in an organization called Girls Right Now, spelled W-R-I-T-E. And I started out just as a supporter of the organization, and then I became a board member. And one of, it, it's a writing mentoring organization. So we mentor New York City um, girls and non-binary people through um very intense one-on-one mentor matching and through creating a community, an intergenerational community of um, women and women identifying writers in New York City. And I loved this because I don't have any kids. I was really concerned about how am I going to connect with younger people in the city where I live, where it's often kind of hard to find community here. Um, So I went to this place because I was getting as much as I was giving, like I supported the organization in all kinds of ways. And I formed relationships with lots of the young people that I met in that organization, but I got a community out of it. Uh, really helped my life as a writer to feel really plugged into that community. So I think it's important to go into these things thinking not just what I can give, but what's going to really make you want to show up every time I go to one of those events. I'm like, it's the only way I know like who's relevant and who are the hot new writers I should be right at following. It's taught me so much about issues around diversity and inclusion and the power of, um, of um, promoting and supporting all kinds of voices that are underrepresented. And that all of what I've learned through girls right now has seeped into the work that I do at Encore and then I developed really deep friendships with many of the young women um, that I met in that through that community. And I learn as much as, from them as I think they learn from me. Uh, that's, to me, the whole secret sauce of mentoring is that it is never one way, that um, you always receive as much as you give. Yeah, absolutely. That's so. And, and to your point about being a sponge, because you know when you go in thinking, "Well, I'm going to, you know, drop my wisdom," you know, th- you might close yourself off from receiving all the um, knowledge and inspiration um, and different perspectives that really fuel. Have you pulled that into your writing? What are some examples? How, how do you how do you see that blossoming in your own life? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Um, I. I think the writing thing is really interesting in that I often now when I'm working on something, instead of just going to kind of one of my peers who we we do a lot of informal editing of each other's work, there's now like a young woman whose writing I just adore that I met through Girls Right Now. She's she's a grad student at NYU, so she lives in my neighborhood and we used to run into each other at the coffee shop pre-pandemic, but now we're sending each other our writing. Um, We send it via text or Instagram and we give each other feedback and we're helping each other think about what are the good outlets. Um, She's turning me, I'm always asking her what she's reading so that I'm influenced by people um, who who are different than I am. So I think that's one way. I I also think a lot about when I I do a lot of public speaking and interviews like this, and I'm trying to think more often of 
bringing along a younger person whenever I get an invitation. So in real life, that was always about, you know, you're invited to a cool event. I always think like, who can I bring to this event who wouldn't have gotten this invitation? Um, and often that means a younger person. And these days it's often, oh, maybe who can I share the mic with? Who, you know, if I get invited to speak on a panel, I'm immediately thinking, um, what younger person do I want to bring along to share that opportunity or to do an interview like this? That's the, that spirit of generosity is so wonderful. I love that you share that. And it, you probably saw this happen over Instagram. I think it was last year when I think Gwyneth Paltrow launched it, the Share the Mic Now campaign where mm-hmm. women, you know, yeah. with white women with very large platforms, you know, reached out to women of color, nine binary people of, of color and turned over their platforms uh, to people who are in the same space, just so that you could get educated. And I I wound up adding so many more perspectives to my um, social media. And I, I love following um, Jen Hatmaker, who is an evangelical Christian from Texas. And I follow Lovey JJ, you know, who is a uh, a black woman and who have very different lives than, than I do. But I, I learned so much about what, what they're sharing. And they introduced me to new people. And I've tried to, like, you know, decolonize my bookshelf and social media by, by following people who are different than I do, uh, or than I am, rather. Uh, I, I'm curious, Marcy, you, you really, you write so beautifully. Before this uh, session today, I got, um, you know, down that internet Google rabbit hole and read a bunch of your articles, and you write with such uh, candor, and, and um, it's, you know, really revelatory pieces. And I talked about the Modern Love column, which ran in 2017. And when I read it yesterday, it was bing. I can remember vividly reading this three years ago. It knocked my socks off. And I, I am going to link to it in the show notes, but I wonder if you would talk about that particular column with our listeners. I think for a lot of us who um, are kind of uh, writers, especially, uh, and if we're readers of the New York Times, it's always been like a, a goal of mine to try to write a piece for that column. And of course, you have to have a, an experience in your life that fits. But um, it was just always kind of one of the things I wanted to do as a writer. And I had a very strange uh, coincidence in my life. A couple of years ago, it happened, actually, the thing that sparked the column happened when I was on an encore trip, I was out in California, and I uh, got picked up by an Uber driver. And it turned out that this driver had a very interesting connection to my prior life. That's all I'll say for now about the actual piece. But I, um, it caused me to go through an interesting process that I will say really relates to aging and, and memory and thinking about the stages of your life. And I wrote this piece and it is very much connected to, I think, the issues you're exploring here, which is like, what happens when, you know, a story that was really prevalent in your life just feels really different 10 years later? Or, <laughs> and I think that is a big piece of what it means to, to advance to the next life stage. And um, so I, I wrote that story um, really kind of quickly, but I did go to my kind of editing friend group and I got a lot of feedback. I, I worked hard on it and um, I pitched it and, you know, two weeks later I got, you know, that email you're dying to get that the story was selected for um, for the column. And it was a dream to work with Dan Jones, the editor there. Um, my, sh- my story never made it to the podcast or to the TV show, but it remains something I'm very proud about. about. But it also 
was a pretty big milestone moment for me because I got way more personal in that piece than I've ever gotten in. I'm I'm often writing about my life experience, but this was a layer of personal that I had never (laughs) approached before. And all my colleagues saw it and, you know, um, lots of people in my prior life saw it. Um, So uh, it was a pretty interesting experience for me and made me feel committed to being more vulnerable in my writing um, going forward. I, I love uh, that you're keeping it a mystery a little bit too. And everyone who's <laughs> listening to this right now needs to finish out the show, stop what they're doing, head to the show notes at a certain because I will be linking to this wonderful, wonderful modern love column and your, your, your socks are going to be knocked off. I promise. Um, you talked about um, sharing more personal things in your writing. I um, started the show by saying that Marcy and I were introduced by a mutual friend named Katie. And when Marcy and I started exchanging emails, I noticed that her, the bottom of her email signature, kind of right next to where you have you know, the, the link to your LinkedIn URL or perhaps your Twitter handle, Marcy had a line that said... Um, I've let my hair go gray, read why and what happened on Instagram. And I thought, this woman is so badass. (laughs) I need to know more about this story. And so I clicked over to Instagram and I I got to enjoy hearing a little bit about um, this. And I would love to talk about it with you while while we're sharing personal things, because I know this may seem like a little bit of a silly switch, but COVID hair has been a an enormous part of the conversations that I've been having with women in my life. And I would love to hear a little bit more about what made you decide to embrace going gray and, and what, what have been the reactions from people in your life? It's been really interesting. So I've thought about it for years. I've been really curious as to what I would look like if I let my hair go natural. I'm pretty vain. I'm a, you know, I care <laughs> about my appearance. We all... I, love, I love style and clothing. I love having a cool haircut and glasses. You know, I'm, I'm into this stuff. And, um, and every time, uh, the last several years, it's been like really nagging me that I chase these roots in my hair. Like every five weeks, I go for this color and it started to like really become a thing where, oh my God, every four weeks I could really start to use it. And I was touching it up at home and it just felt like kind of the most ridiculous, silly thing that I was doing Because at the same time, because I work in the aging field, I was noticing, I was following, like there's a bunch of, you know, gray haired models and there's a whole, you know, grannies of Instagram and elder style movement and, and young people who have gone gray and um, are really embracing this. And I've been, this is not a new trend. This has been going on for a while. And I I couldn't figure out why I was so resistant to it because here I am, I'm not shy about my age. Um, I wear my age, you know, I love the way you open the show with about women claiming their aging and aging in, out, out loud. And I've done that very openly. Yet here I was holding on to this one thing. And I think I just really was attached to a particular look that I had that felt really like myself. And I was just afa- afraid about what would happen if I let it go. I'm like, weirdly, you know, the first few months of COVID when we couldn't get in, you know, couldn't go to hair salons or anything. And lots of people were dying at home and trading, you know, recipes and, you know, techniques. And I was like, oh, didn't want to mess up my bathroom. I was like, okay, this will be my COVID project. I will just like let it, let it go for a while. And weirdly, after a couple of months, I started 
loving what I was seeing, you know, and people would comment on Zoom and they'd be like, oh, your hair is looking kind of cool. And at the beginning, I was just wearing it up all the time. And all you saw was the white and gray because it's more like silver because I met you on Zoom yesterday and it's more silver. It's beautiful. So I was getting a lot of compliments and then like a really significant, two significant things happened. I walked down and like one of the um, guys who works in my building, I live in a high rise in Manhattan, um, who his, he's silver himself and he, he wears it really well. He looked at me and he's like, I don't think I'm allowed to say this, but I love what's going on with your hair. And I think he was like, <laughs> I'm trying not to be like inappropriate, but he was, it was like stuck with me. And I was like, Oh, that's interesting. And then like one of my young friends, a guy who um, I'm quite close with, who's, who's about in it. He's just turned 30. We were um, on FaceTime at some point and he's like, I really am digging the hair. And he's like, you're kind of like this, cool teacher I would have stayed after school to talk to and I just felt like you know it's a new life stage I think maybe I need a new look I love Um, it so I'm still in the project you know Kitty this does not happen quickly like I have inches of like this weird you know brownish color that's not even my natural color because my natural color would be black but it was colored over this light brown which is what they tell you would look nicer as you're going gray so it's going to be forever. And I thought, wow, this also gives me um, something to talk about in the aging space and to experience because I will say, though, the thing that is that has really influenced me the most since I've done this is I do think people think I'm older. And um, I got, I, I mean, I did a post on this on Instagram. I went to get my flu shot. And as soon as I got up to the counter, uh, the younger woman who was t- doing intake there asked me if I was over 65 and I'm 54. <laughs> so I'm, I'm I've always looked really young and I, I definitely bristled at that. Now it's also possible she did that because that is a required question they ask, but I spent a lot of time that day really minding my own feelings and reactions to that and thinking how would it would feel if I was looking for a job right now how it would feel if I was dating right now. I mean, it was just like it raised a sure. lot of really interesting questions for me. We, we all have that. I mean, I remember the first time somebody called me ma'am and I'm like looking over my shoulder. Who is that guy talking to? You know, and you feel like I'm not ma'am. You know, I'm. You, you, it's hard when people start assigning these these things to you that, that make you feel dated or old. But, I, you know, I follow a lot of wonderful silver, silver-haired Instagram accounts like Cotton Haired Woman and Silver Sisters on Instagram, and I'll put those into the show notes as well. But I think that when people have, like, the vibrant, you know, you know energetic face that you have and you have silver hair, like, you look younger almost because, mm. you know, I've seen that, that, that women are so... Um, beautiful and, and, and embrace it. But I, you know, co- the hair thing is tricky because COVID taught me that I'm actually not blonde, that I'm a brunette. And, um, <laughs> you know, I was sort of like, wait a minute, wh- I, I'm not, I don't have brown hair. Uh, and I know I'll be gray eventually because my mom, you know, grayed as well, but she, she did it late, later in her 60s. And so that's, that's coming. But I, I can relate to that whole identity of you're used to looking in the mirror and expecting to see a certain face you know, or hair. Yeah. And, when, and when it feels different, it, it takes a little bit getting used to. Um, we yeah. are nearing the end of our time, Marcy. I, I have loved this so much. Um, we, you've shared so many wonderful stories. I have so much to put into the show notes. So I hope people are going to come to a certain age pod talk, dot com to 
see these images, to read your articles. But I want to ask you, I know that uh, Encore.org has got some exciting projects happening. Can you share what you're up to, uh, a resource or a tool with, that our listeners should know about? Sure, I have two. Yes, So good. today is a big day at Encore.org because one of my mentors and dearest friends um, and colleague, Mark Friedman, the founder and CEO of Encore, his book, How to Live Forever, uh, is out in paperback as of today. And that book um, really influenced me so much in my thinking about the importance of connecting across generations. That's really the heart of what this book is about. Uh, So I'm sure you can include a link to the book in the show notes. We also were working on a lot of events. One thing that COVID has done for us is that we've been able to bring people together virtually for a lot of interesting online um, connections. And we have two events that I'll mention, and I can share the links with you. One is a colleague of mine um, is hosting an event called Civic Saturday um, this Saturday about uh, what she calls creating a new civic love language. So if you're familiar with the concept of love languages, what would it be if we all practiced a little that in our community and in our civic engagement? And that is this Saturday at 2 p.m. Eastern time uh, online. and then. Um, on next, uh, I think it's Tuesday, it's December 8th, um, we have our first in a series of intergenerational conversations about racial justice um, kicking off. And uh, that is with an organization that we are really excited about called My Life, My Stories, which um, forges um cross-generational relationships through storytelling. And it's for anybody who wants to really um, kind of think about the role you personally can play in the fight for racial justice and doing that in a way that crosses generations. So uh, really excited about both of those events coming up. Marcy, thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure. And I, I can't wait to be able to share the pod. This wraps A Certain Age, a show for women over 50 who are aging without apology. I am so grateful for your time, attention, and for listening each week. You are amazing. And because you are amazing, I want to ask you to help me help grow the show. And doing so is super easy. Please leave a review and rate the show on Apple Podcasts. Doing so helps other listeners find it. Super easy, right? Or if Instagram or Facebook is more your thing, come keep me company over at A Certain Age Pod. Special thanks to Michael Mancini Productions, who composed and produced our theme music. See you next time, and until then, age boldly, beauties. Beauties.